Okay, good evening, everybody. A very special thank you to the Walpov Mishpacha for sponsoring this evening cheer. This is in honor of Mrs. Walpov's parents, Shlomo Ben Naftali and Rivka Rachelbas Moshe Meyer. Both uh, your father and mother's neshama should have an aliyah. And Amir Hashem, through the continued growth of the family and coming closer to a Kaddish Baruch Hu through Limud HaTorah, and uh, your overall aliyah should serve as a, a very powerful aliyah for the neshamos. Wanted to also, also wish a special mazel tov to our chatan and kala, Yosef and Barbara, who got uh, officially married just uh, this past week. So mazel tov on that. That was a beautiful ceremony, and it was honor, an honor to be, uh, to be a part of it. We should share in many simchas. like to speak about two ideas and explore how these concepts are very intertwined. On one hand, we have the notion of the, the power of Torah, the transformative power of Limud HaTorah, our learning Torah, our engaging in Torah. And then we also have the Mesikus HaTorah, the sweetness of Torah the gishmak, if you will. I'd like to explore what these two ideas are and how they're very intimately connected. And I think at a time like this, where we just finished Yom Kippur Katan, which is a very, uh, a very meaningful tefillah, there's a lot happening in the Jewish world there's a lot of questions that uh, we're grappling with. And I think as we go into Shavuos, a way to be mechazek, to strengthen our core, to be able to hold tight onto the Eitz Chaim, the eternal tree of life, I think it's very important that we bridge these two ideas together and we understand that intimate relationship between the, the power of Torah how it's able to transform and uplift a person, and the Mesikus HaTorah, the sweetness of Torah, the Ne'imus HaTorah, the pleasantness of Torah. There's a well-known Gemara in Psachim where Rabbi Yosef used to have a massive, lavish celebration on Shavuos. This was his holiday. And the reason he gave was, Eloha Yoma, if not for this day, if not for this special yontif of Shavuos, Kama Yosef Ika Bashuka. There are many Yosefs in the Shuk. You walk down the street, you can meet many people named Yosef, and I would just be like any other Yosef. However, because of the special day of Matan Torah, because of Shavuos, I'm different. I'm Rav Yosef. What exactly was this uh, excitement or this celebration that he was expressing? Rashi explains, Ilav ha If not for this day, Shalomadati Torah v'nisromamti. Rav Yosef's main point was not to gloat, not to uh, share any arrogance. 
He wasn't saying that I'm better than all the other Amaratzim out there named Yosef. But he was recognizing that which made him special, that which gave his life meaning. He was saying, through my learning of Torah, I was able to be uplifted. I was transformed through my Limon HaTorah, and that's why Shavuos, personally, said Rav Yosef, is such a special yantif. This made me who I am. Shalomadati Torah v'nisromamti. Now Yosef, Rav Yosef, we find many places throughout Shas, and oftentimes the barplugta of Rav Yosef was Rabbah. The other Amora that would argue with Rav Yosef was his dear friend Rabbah. And the Gemara and Brachos tells us that they were both exceptional in different areas. Rav Yosef was known as Sinai. Right? They called him for, for a nickname Mount Sinai. That was Rav Yosef. And Rabbah was Oker Harim. Rabbah was known for his ability to uproot mountains. So what's Sinai versus Oker Harim? As the Gemara explains that Sinai was a praise that Rav Yosef had such an incredible grasp of all of Torah, it's as if he was the source of our Sinai. So Rav Yosef was Sinai because of his extensive Bikiyas, his knowledge in all areas of Torah. Rabbah was Oker Harim. He could uproot mountains. He didn't have that same vast knowledge as Rav Yosef, his contemporary, but he had a charifus, he had a sharpness, he was brilliant. Right? He could uplift, he could uproot the mountain with his chachma, with his seichel. So the question was, in the great yeshiva in Pumpadisa, we know in Bavel they had you know, many uh, massive Torah institutions. The question was, who was going to take over to be the next Rosh Hashiva? Was it Rav Yosef, who was Sinai, who knew everything, or was it Rabbah, who was Oker Harim, who was sharp and quick? So the Gemara says, they analyzed the question, all of the Talmud Chachamim of the time, and their conclusion was, Sinai is more necessary than Oker Harim. Because although it's an amazing thing to have a mind that could penetrate into the, the depths of Torah, but if we don't have that broad-based knowledge, then we might, we might lose some of the Torah. So Rav Yosef, they felt, was more essential. His maila, his quality of, of knowing so much information, we need that more than Rabbah, and therefore we should appoint Rav Yosef as the Rosh Hashiva. Now it is interesting, parenthetically, that some people note, it could be this conclusion of the Gemara was more so in the times before they were writing down Torah Shabal Peh. If we're not really writing things down, or at least having a central documentation of this information, then if one brysa, if one tosefta is forgotten, it's forgotten forever. It could very well be, many suggest, that Bisman Hazad nowadays Oker Harim is more chashiv, being able to penetrate and, and see and read between the lines is more necessary than having that broad hekif, that breadth of information. 
because we have books. We could always look something up. But at least in the times of the Gemara, they paskin that they want Rabbi Yosef to be the Rosh Hashiva. However, he declined the position. Why turn it down? It's a very Hashiv position, being the head of Pumpadisa. So the Gemara says that in consultation with astrologers, he was informed that if he was to take that position, he would pass away in a couple of years. Now, that in and of itself is a very interesting thing. What was he doing, being Shoal Eitzah, asking questions from people who were astrologers? We'll put that aside for now, though. But based on that, he declined the offer, and therefore Rabbah, his contemporary, was appointed as the Rosh Hashiva of Pumpadisa. Rabbah, the Gemara tells us, led the yeshiva for 22 years, and it was a time of uh, flourishing in Bavel, a time where there were new Talmidim coming in, and it was Haromas Karen HaTorah, the glory of Torah was shining bright. Eventually, Rabbah passes away, at this point, Rav Yosef, already an elderly man, he accepts the position. He does take over the mantle for the next couple of years before he himself passes away. But the Gemara tells us that although he was of a similar stature, if not a higher level in his, in his Torah knowledge than Rabbah, during the time that Rabbah was Rosh Hashiva, Rav Yosef would not let anybody treat him as their Rebbe, as their mentor. He wanted to be just one of the Kolol guys, one of the Bachrim in the yeshiva. And even though obviously people came to Rav Yosef for questions, and he was a Malamed, he taught Torah in many different capacities, but he was very makbid not to step on Rabbah's toes to the extent that when the doctor was needed in the olden days, it was very normal to make a house call. The doctor comes to your house and checks on you. Rav Yosef said, absolutely not. You're not going to come to me. I'm going to come to you. So we see an insight into the humility, not just the brilliance of Rav Yosef, but the humility of Rav Yosef. It's interesting. We have at the Gemara, the Mishnah actually, at the very end of Sota, the Mishnah says that Mishames Rebbe Batla Anava that when Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi passed away, humility was gone from the world. He was the last person to have real anava, real humility. Rav Yosef said to the person who taught that Mishnah, Amale Rav Yosef, Lo Titni Anava. Don't say that when Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi passed away. There was no more humility in the world. Ha'ika ana, because you still have me. I'm still here. And I also have anava. So don't write in the Mishnah that humility left the world when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi passed away. That's not true. I'm just as humble as he is. Now, superficially, that does sound strange because you would assume if someone is humble, you know, what do you care? Okay, so people are going to think that Rabbi Yehud HaNasi was also, or was more humble than you. And maybe another did leave the world when he passed away. Why do you care? So some explain that Rabbi Yosef wanted to make it clear 
Don't think that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was the last one to have a Nava, and our Rebbeim were not able to transmit that quality to us. That's not true. Through their, their lives, through their teaching, through their essence, they were able to give us that same Mida by saying that a Nava was bottle. What you're really doing is disrespecting Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. You're saying that he wasn't able to pass that on to others. But it's clear from the Gemara that Rabbi Yosef was a very special person. He was brilliant and he was humble. How did he become this way? If you were to ask Rabbi Yosef that question, how did you get here? What, what made you into the, uh, the human being you are now? What would he answer? Shalomadati Torah v'nisro mamti. Because I had the opportunity, Baruch Hashem, to learn Torah. V'nisro mamti, and that's uplifted me. That, that's given me the ability to maximize the potential that's within me. And therefore, Shavuos for Rav Yosef was a great celebration. If we look at the life of Rabbi Akiva, not to get in chronologically to every step of his journey, but he used to tell his Talmidim that that when I was ignorant, before I went back to learning, I used to say, If someone would just give into my hands a Torah scholar, because I want to bite him like a donkey. Right? The holy words of Rabbi Akiva. If someone would just give me a Rosh Hashiva or a Dayan, somebody really chashiv, I want to bite him like a chamor. So the Talmidim asked their great Rebbe, why did you feel that way? Why not say you want to bite them like a kelev, like a dog? I guess that would be a more natural expression. Why like a chamor? So Rabbi Akiva explained to his Talmidim, you have to understand. Zen no sheikh v'shover etzim. When a donkey bites, it also breaks bones. Vezen no sheikh v'eno shover etzim. But when a dog bites, it doesn't usually break bones. And I had such a feeling of resentment such a feeling of animosity towards Talmidei Chachamim, I wanted to bite them and break their bones. Now, that's surprising that those feelings would come from Rabbi Akiva even before he started learning. We know that Gemara Ksubis tells us that the reason why the daughter of Bas, the daughter of uh, Kalba Savua, was interested in, in marrying Akiva although he was not yet Rebbe Akiva, is because she noticed that he had a very special quality, Tzniya Umali. He was a refined, dignified human being. So Tosus was bothered by the question, one second. If before Rebbe Akiva went back into learning, he was Tzniya Umali, he was a wonderful mensch of a person, and that's why the daughter of Kalbo Savua wanted to marry him, although he was ignorant. How do we understand the fact that he had such a hatred of Torah scholars? If you're a refined person, if you're a mensch, you wouldn't feel like that towards the Talmud Chacham. How did those two things go together? 
So Tosas explains, you shouldn't think that Rabbi Akiva just hated Talmidei Chachamim because of what they represented, because he hated Torah. Chas v'shalom. He never hated the rabbis. He never hated Torah. Rather, Savor, which means, at least in his perception, he thought that the Torah scholars of his time were misgoin al ame ha'aretz, mipnei Torasan, that they felt arrogant, and, and, and they had that holier-than-thou uh, sense about them. Because of their Torah knowledge, he felt they were looking down on him. And also in the perception of Rabbi Akiva, because I think that you're looking down at me because you know so much and I know so little, that means you have a sinna towards me and, and towards my friends who are also ignorant. And that's where his feeling of, of real anger was coming from. I want to bite you and break your bones. Not because I hate rabbis, not because I hate Torah. I love Torah. I'm really a good person. I'm a mensch. I'm tznia umali. I'm modest and I'm refined. But when I feel that you're looking down on me, that really makes me angry. That's where Rabbi Akiva was coming from, though. Those were the feelings that he was grappling with. That same Mishnah in Sota, the very end of Sota, says, Kishemes Rebbe Akiva, when Rebbe Akiva passed away, Botel Kavod HaTorah. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. What left the world when Rebbe Akiva died? Kavod HaTorah. Having a reverence for Torah. Having respect for Talmidei Chachamim. He was the paradigm of that. He was the human being that had the, the, the utmost covered HaTorah that the Mishnah is able to testify when Rabbi Akiva passed away, there was no more covered HaTorah in the world. Nothing compares to Rabbi Akiva's covered HaTorah. Wow! That's an amazing transformation. Right? You're starting off as an Amaaretz feeling this, this real anger and frustration and resentment towards Talmud Chachamim because you think they're looking down at you. You think they don't like you and therefore you want to break their bones. And then over time, you're able to transform yourself into not just someone who's accepting or loving or caring for other Talmud Chachamim, but you are the essence of Kavod HaTorah. That's a transformation of the human being. If you were to ask Rabbi Akiva, how did you accomplish that? How did you move mikotza el kotza from one extreme to the other? What would Rabbi Akiva answer? Shalomadati Torah v'nisromamti. Because I had the opportunity to learn Torah v'nisromamti and that uplifted me. That, that transformed me. That's the power of Torah. The Chazonish writes in one of his letters that it's not surprising when we meet real Gedoli Yisrael and, and we feel something so tangible, so powerful. We, we feel this radiance of, of the Neshama. It's a different level human being. Where is that coming from? Explains the Chazonish. 
Iker skulas hatora lohovi esodim luromamos ilah. The greatest, the greatest segulas hatora, the power of Torah to bring a human being to an almost an angelic level. Ba al yedei amola shel Torah. That comes through not just learning Torah, but amola shel Torah, working in Torah, being devoted to Torah, channeling all of my energies towards my limud HaTorah. It's not just then I'll know more information, then I'll be able to know halacha better, then I could uh, be more well-versed in Shas. Those are all wonderful things. But the realization that the limud HaTorah, the learning of Torah, is transformative. Right? It's transformative. Now often when we speak about limud HaTorah, we tend to think this applies to men more than women. And on one hand, that is definitely true. Men do have the requirement of debartenbaum. Men have the obligation to learn Torah. Women don't have the same obligation to learn Torah as men do. However, we know that women also make the berchas Torah. They also thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Amim, they said the bracha v'sher k'dishonu b'mitzvosa v'tzivonu lasok b'divrei sora. What exactly is that chilek? What is that connection that women have with limud haTorah? And therefore, to recognize that this is not just a conversation for the men in the room, but it's also a conversation for the women. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta writes in one of his letters that it's true. Technically speaking, limud haTorah, it's for men. Shinantem levanecha. However, when it comes to growth through Torah, when it comes through the the, the musr of Torah, the machshava, the depth, the brilliance, the, the the beauty of Torah, that's something that's required for both men and women. He says, therefore, the limud haMusr. The requirement to learn Musr, to work on ourselves through uh, learning the classic texts of Mesilas Yisharim and Chovas Levavos and Sharei Tshuva and many, many others, or getting involved with more contemporary works like the Alei Shor or the Sif Seichayim. That's something that both men and women have the responsibility to delve into. So although this may seem more geared towards men, it's definitely something that, that women uh, are part of as well. That's the transformative power of Torah. I want to jump for a moment to address the Mesikus HaTorah, the sweetness of Torah. And then we'll see how they're connected. By a show of hands, when most middle school boys walk into the classroom and they're learning Hamafkid, how many of them are overwhelmed by the sweetness of Torah? Yitzchak, what do you say? What percentage? <laughs> uh, for those who didn't see or for those who are watching on the video, that was a big fat zero. And it's not because of your school, it's not because of your rebellion, they're all amazing. But I think if you'd ask many people, 
especially in the younger years, they would say, I, I don't really, I, I don't taste it. Maybe it's the, the COVID taste buds, right? I can't smell it, I can't taste it. And then when the Rebbe gets very into something, right? This is so geschmack. Oh, so geschmack. Oftentimes, kids are sitting there asking themselves, is there something wrong with me? I would rather be doing almost anything right now than sitting here trying to understand what he's telling me. So on one hand, the Torah is geschmack. It is sweet. But it's also a developed taste. Right? The Orachayim tells us famously, and the Pasuk in the Parshish Kisovo, Vismachda Bakol Hatov, that we will rejoice in Hashem when we're able to follow the path of Torah. We will rejoice with the good. What is the good referring to? Explains the Orachayim. Shim Hayu Bene Adam Margishim Bemesikus Varevus Tov HaTorah. It's referring to Torah. And the Pusik's telling us that if B'nai Adam were able to feel the sweetness and the pleasantness, the Gishmak of Torah, they would be chasing after Torah wildly. Nothing else in the world would be meaningful. All of the hevel havalim, the futilities of this world, would be pushed aside and people would just be running, sprinting towards Torah. Ki ha-Torah koleles kol ha-tovo olam Because Torah somehow includes all of the good, all of the pleasure, all of the, the taste in this world. It's within Torah. The Orachim is not just saying we have physical pleasure, and we also have spiritual pleasure, and Torah is more spiritual than physical. HaTorah koleles kol ha-tovo olam The Orachim is telling us, if we know what we're doing, if we have the proper atmosphere and, 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 and the proper perspective, somehow all of the gishmak, all of the, the, the pleasure in the world, I can experience through the Torah. But it's also clear from the Orachayim that it's not something you taste right off the bat. It's not like honey, necessarily, where as soon as you, you dip your tongue into the honey, you feel the sweetness. Because he says, If people would sense it, the clear implication is that many of us don't. So how do we get there? How do we appreciate? How do we refine our taste buds? If you're to delve in a little bit deeper and ask philosophically, why is it sweet? Why is it true, Pekude Hashem Yishorim Misam Chelev, that by learning Torah that gladdens the heart of the human being? What is that process? So the Radak explains, ultimately we know we're comprised of body and soul. When we're able to subdue the body, 
and, and control ourselves through the seichel, through the neshama. Ein simcha ba'olam kesimcha hahi. There is no greater joy than being freed from the shackles of physicality. There is no greater joy than being able to rise above so much of the narishkeit that, that my mind is constantly occupied with. There is no greater joy than to be able to transcend feelings of jealousy and competition and, 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 and a pursuit of wealth and prestige and status and reputation. If I can somehow get all of that off of my plate, and just focus on what's real? What am I doing here? How can I maximize my time? How could I enhance my relationships? How could I become more of a Ben Torah or a Bas Yisrael? That's the greatest joy in the world. Therefore, says the Radak, the Pasuk doesn't say, Hashem Yisharim Adam. The Torah doesn't bring happiness necessarily to the human being who's a body, but it's misam chelev, referring to the neshama, but it can bring joy to the neshama, meaning to say, if that's what I'm thirsting for, if that's what I'm yearning for, and, and that's where my, my mind is, then there's nothing more refreshing than being able to jump into the world of Torah. But if I'm consumed by physicality, and I'm distracted by all the other things going on besides that which is real, then Torah might not taste that sweet. Torah is compared to water. What's the analogy? Torah and Mayim. So the Chafetz Chaim explained that water really doesn't have a taste. The proof to this is we know in Halacha, if you're not thirsty, what bracha do you make on water? you don't make a bracha on water. If you're not thirsty, but yet you have a sip of Coke, you make a shahakal, because that's sweet. It has a taste to it. Water is not sweet. You only make a bracha on water when you're thirsty because it's the fact that you want it that makes it refreshing. The same thing is true with Torah. Torah can be the most refreshing thing in the world, but I'm not able to experience that unless I have a yearning for it, unless I'm thirsty. Shlomo HaMelech writes in Mishle, the nefesh seveya tovus nofes, that the satiated soul doesn't even want honey. Even the sweetest dessert, it, it's repulsive to me. The nefesh re'eva kol mar mosuk. But if you have a man who's hungry, who's starving, then even something that's bitter is the sweetest thing in the world. <clears throat> right? The steak is only as good as the appetite. Torah is mosuk. It's orev. It's pleasurable. But we need to be thirsty. <clears throat> How do we make ourselves thirsty? So I think just the appreciation of how these two ideas, the transformative power of Torah and the Gishmak of Torah, are very interconnected. The transformation of Torah comes through delving into HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world, delving into Hashem's mind, so to speak, 
detaching myself or freeing myself from all of the, the trivial issues that life can surround me with. I'm a different person. I'm angelic. And it's that same process that brings the greatest simcha, like the Radak told us. It's the freeing of the neshama, allowing the neshama to be in control. Allowing ourselves to have that clarity of vision of machovaso bo'olamo, understanding that I have a limited time and I have a lot to accomplish. There's no greater joy than that. So the transformation and the simcha, those things are really based on, on the exact same fundamental issue. We're, we're, we're raising ourselves up. We're transcending the physical. But how do I feel the, the sweetness how do I make myself thirsty? So I want to share with you an idea from Aaron Cutler. This is uh, source number 15 on page 4. <clears throat> and then I want to uh, conclude with a letter written by the Rambam and, uh, and a small piece from Rechai Moser. But first, Aaron Cutler quotes a, a Mechilta where the Mechilta gives us the secret, how to enjoy, how to taste the Gishmak of Torah, basically how to make ourselves thirsty. Imata tekablu aleichem. The Mechilta tells us, if we make that commitment, if we push ourselves to have a consistency and a diligence and a real responsibility for our learning, if it's the, the vastness of Limud HaTorah for men, if it's the world of Musr and Machshava and Halacha Lemaiser for women, but if we make that commitment, Im ata tekablu aleichem, then ya'arev lechem mikan ve'elech, then it will become sweet. Which is almost counterintuitive because if you were to ask most people, why and when would you ever commit to do something every day? So, either because I'll make money doing it, that's why I go to work. It might not be orev, it may not be pleasant, but this is something I have to do. Or, I'll make time consistently to do something if I enjoy doing it. So, if I was feeling that, 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 that sweetness of Torah, of course I would make it part of my schedule. But I'm not feeling it. So how do, I, how do I make myself thirsty? How do you make yourself want something you don't necessarily want? By doing it. And doing it consistently. And doing it with a sense of achrayas, with accountability. Rav Aaron Cutler says, it works in the other direction as well. The more I allow myself to deviate from that consistency, the more I don't push myself to carve out time, then it becomes that much harder because I'm more removed from that world. Not just am, am I lacking the habit of learning Torah, of getting together with a chavrusa or going to a shir, but, but I'm a different person. I'm, I'm subtly more physical. But says, Rav Aaron Kotler, that if we force ourselves to say, 
whether or not I'm appreciating it now, whether or not it's sweet and it's pleasant and it's gishmak right now, doesn't make a difference. But if somehow I make this part of my life, part of my routine, not only will it become easier, like anything we do in life, any habit we develop, but it will become sweet. It will become enjoyable. Because objectively, it is gishmak. And the more I'm able to strengthen myself in Torah, not just superficially, not just casually, but through really delving in and trying to understand what I'm learning. And if, even if it's only 15 minutes a day, but I'm fully absorbed in this. My cell phone is turned off. Nobody can bother me. It's me and the Kaddosh Baruch Hu through the avenue of the Torah. We have a haftacha, we have a promise that through this diligence, through this, this daily schedule, it will become easier and it will become sweeter. I think the best analogy is when it comes to exercise. A person gets out of exercise, it's really hard to get back into the zone. And, and the longer a person stays out of that world, and the more time I have where I'm not pushing myself to, to do something active, I have less and less of an interest. I'm so, I'm so removed from that reality. So how do, I, how do I get back into that reality? How do I want to actually jog again? When it's, as of now, it's torture. Why would I do that to myself? The only way it's going to work is by making myself do it. And in the beginning, it will be difficult. And it might be difficult for a few weeks. But eventually, the more I do it, if I stay committed, it gets easier. And then after a while, it not only gets easier, but it actually gets to a point where I need it. I want it. How can I go to work without going for my morning jog? Right, Halavai, we should get there one day. (laughs) But I know such people, they do exist. (laughs) They do exist, but the only way to get to the point where you could actually appreciate it is through the consistency. Lamaisa, it's much easier said than done, and we have to be careful because we see from the Orachayim that although it can be so incredibly blissful and gishmak and beautiful, Superficially, it may not be. But we can't give up because we're not feeling the, the sweetness. We have to keep on pushing, and we have a haftacha, we have a promise from a Kaddish Baruch Hu that if we stay the course, we will feel it, we'll taste it. I think now, just with all of the turbulence that we've been through and that we're going through, there's nothing more essential than this commitment, this anchor to Torah. The Rambam was uh, about 40 years old when he lost his brother. We know that the Rambam was the older brother of Rav David. And Rav David was the merchant. 
He was the, uh, the businessman. He would travel the world. And he would support his brother. So the Rambam could be able to sit and learn and, and transform the world through his Torah. <clears throat> when the Rambam was about 40, he received the devastating news that his brother was lost at sea. And uh, he soon realized that he wasn't coming back. But his brother, together with his crew, they perished. And that was a devastating blow for the Rambam. We get a little bit of an insight into how he, how he was able to cope with that loss through a letter that actually came to the Rambam about eight years later. The Rambam was about 47, 48 at the time. And he receives a letter from someone he was friendly with when they lived in Eretz Yisrael. We know the Rambam was born in Cordova, Spain, and eventually him together with his family, they made their way um, to Morocco and then to Eretz Yisrael. That's where his father, Rabbeinu Maimon, passed away, and eventually they, uh, they came down to Egypt. So he gets a letter, and this fellow is criticizing the Rambam for not keeping in touch. He says, you haven't, you haven't uh, you know, communicated with me for a long time. Have you forgotten about me? And a tremendous azus and chutzpah. It almost sounds like it came from his mother-in-law, you know. Haven't called me, what's going on? The Rambam, though, answers with, uh, with the Kharifus. He didn't hold back a punch over here. He said, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, life has been tumultuous. As you know, that Mace Avi Mori, my father, did pass away. And he even mentions parenthetically at the time, I received letters of tachanunim, of, of uh, comfort, from across the world implying I didn't receive one from you, right? <laughs> and I've been through many sorrows. I had to come and live in Mitzrayim, and here I've been struggling with different illnesses, the loss of money, Mosrim, people trying to turn me into the authorities, people trying to kill me. I've been through a lot. ba'achrona. <laughs> But the greatest evil that has befallen me, the hardest thing that I had to work through in life, was the passing of the righteous one, that he, he perished in the Indian Ocean, referring to his brother, of course. And when that ship went down, not only did I, my brother and the, the crew, were they lost, but they had wealth, they had possessions, everything was lost. He left his young daughter and his widow, who are by me now, and I, I've taken on the responsibility to take care of not only my own family, but uh, his family as well. And as soon as I heard about this, this terrible tragedy, for almost an entire year, 
Nofal al hamita b'shechin ro u'b'dalekis u'b'timhon levov. I was in bed. I was in bed with fever, with confusion. U'kemat kat ha'isi oved. I almost didn't make it. The Rambam's giving us an amazing glimpse into how devastating this was to lose his brother. Now, I assume when the Rambam says he was in bed for a year, he was still continuing, you know, writing the Mishnah Torah and, and mathematics and everything else. But clearly, he wasn't the same person for that year. And even now, it's, it's been almost eight years since my brother's passing. Ani misabel velo nishamtani. I'm still mourning. I still don't have that real sense of comfort. Ubemes nachem. How can I have the comfort when I think about the brother who was raised on my knees? He would sit in my lap. He was my brother. He was my Talmud. He devoted his life to, to making money and supporting the family in order to allow me to learn and to steig and to write. The greatest joy in life I had was just being with my brother. But now, he's no longer with us. He's left me in a land, in a foreign land, and I find myself confused. And kol And any time I even see a letter written by my brother or one of his svarim, it brings up the feelings of loss, which is an incredible glimpse into that real Ava Aza. What a relationship the Rambam had with his brother that eight years later, if he sees the Ksaviyad, he sees the writing or a Sefer belonging to his brother, it brings back those, those feelings of pain. Klolo shel Dover, he concludes his letter. Ki ered el b'ni evil she'ola. You should know that life has been difficult for me. And without the Torah, which is my source of pleasure, and the words of yagoni, that I'm able to forget my pain when I allow myself to delve into the pure waters of Torah, I would have been lost in my poverty. So he's saying, my anchor in these very turbulent waters, the way that personally I'm able to get through loss is through the Torah. Without your Torah being the source of my pleasure, of my meaning, of my menuchas and nefesh, I'd be lost. I'd be lost without you. We only get there, though, when we're thirsty. We, we're able to, to, to create that thirst through the consistency, even when it's not pleasant, even when it doesn't taste sweet. We, we stay the course. If we have that sweetness, if we attain even a little bit, a fraction of what the Rambam was able to attain in his life, that could be 
a centerpiece for nechama, for comfort, for clarity, where we don't have to have answers for many of the questions and many of the issues surrounding us. But as long as we have the Torah shashuai as our anchor, as our source of joy, that's the only clarity we need. I want to just conclude here with one line from Reb Chaim Ozer. Reb Chaim Ozer, when he published his Sefer, the Achiezer, he, uh, he writes in his introduction that on one hand I feel awkward publishing a Sefer at a time like this. This was right after World War I, and there was dispersion, and yeshivas had to move, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of tsar in the Jewish world. So he says... What am I doing? What am I doing publishing a Sefer right now? Hello, Yishel HaShoel, one may ask. Am Yisrael Toveya Be'yom Shel Demos. The Jewish people are drowning in a sea of tears. Va'atem Omrim Shira. And here you're singing a song? You're happy that you get to publish a Sefer? It's almost as if you're, you're in a building and the building is on fire and people are running and screaming and trying to find safety, and you're somehow totally ignoring the flames around you, and you're just standing there tranquilly in your apartment, putting up pictures, setting up the flowers, totally, totally blinded to what's going on. That's what it looks like, says Reb Chaim Moser. However, I want you to know, it's not even though we're going through hard times. I think it's appropriate to share this Torah. But it's actually because we're going through hard times, we need this now more than ever. He says, This has always been the strength and the vigor and the vitality of the Jewish people in all the generations. Everywhere we found ourselves, if it was in Bovel, if it was in Spain, if it was in Eastern Europe, even when the sword is right on one's neck, the only thing we know, the only clarity we have is the Torah is my joy. And therefore, everything else could be fuzzy. I have this clarity. He concludes here, through the Amkus, through devoting time and energy to delve into Torah, to whatever amount we can, the Hispashtus HaLimut, and being able to spread out that Limut HaTorah, this is a Tris Bifneha Puranios. Our learning will serve as a protection against harmful forces. The Torah, its power and its light, no matter how far away we may be, will bring us closer to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. This has been the source of our survival. This will be the continuity of Klal Yisrael. Torah is transformative. And that transformation can be the greatest pleasure in the world when we're thirsting for it. The way we thirst for it is through devoting that time and effort and energy to make sure that it happens. A good Shabbos.